True story, uh, Paul and Rachel had only been married for six days and just got back from the honeymoon, which is wonderful. First night back at home, Paul's getting ready for bed. He uh, sets the alarm, he turns off the lamp, he lays his head in the pillow, and then he gently whispers to his wife, uh, I gotta leave for work by six in the morning, can you have breakfast ready by 5.45? And Rachel says, excuse me? And Paul says, 5.45, that should give me enough time to eat before I have to leave for work. And Rachel says, what do you mean, have breakfast ready? And Paul says, well, that's what my mom used to do. My mom fixed me breakfast every morning. I mean, eggs, sausage, homemade biscuits, the works. I figured you would too. There's a long period of silence, and then you hear Rachel say, I'm not your mom. (laughs) Two amazing things about this story. Number one, Paul and Rachel are still married. And number two, Paul has learned how to fix breakfast for himself. (laughs) Isn't it true that some of the troubles that we experience in this life are troubles that we created for ourselves? Sometimes we find ourselves in a mess, and we're in that mess not because there's something wrong with the other person. Sometimes we're in that mess because there's something wrong with us and our expectations of them. C.S. Lewis tells about a moment in his life when he became really angry with God. He said he felt so disappointed, so let down, because he thought God wasn't helping him the way he was supposed to. And then one day C.S. Lewis said he woke up and he realized the problem's not with God. The problem's with me, my expectations of him. Don't you hate it? I mean, just hate it when other people begin to expect things from you that they have no right to expect. Let's say one day a, a writer approaches you and says, hey, I've been watching you for a while. I've really come to like you, and I'd love to be able to write your biography. I want other people to know how wonderful you are. And, of course, you're flattered by this, and you say, okay. And you're thinking to yourself, wow, I never imagined somebody would write a book about me. Well, about a year and a half later, he finishes the book, and he gives you a first look at the manuscript before he sends it off to the publisher. And yet... As you're flipping through the pages, you're kind of confused. He says, at one point, you were an astronaut, went up into space several different times, did a lot of remarkable things while you were working there at NASA. But though life at NASA was good, life back home wasn't so good. There was a whole string of failed relationships. You just never really got along with your your family and friends. And that's why today you're living alone in a house with 18 cats. Well, you pull the writer aside and say, "Uh, (laughs) oh, I got a problem. Number one, I'm scared of heights. There's no way I could have made a living working as an astronaut. So why would you say that about me? And number two, this whole string of failed relationships. Really? I've only been married once and I'm still married. I love my wife dearly and she loves me. Life at home is good. And number three, I prefer dogs over cats. Well, the writer comes right back and he says, David, if we want people to buy this book, we've got to kind of liven things up. We've got to make your life appear a little more interesting than what it actually is. So here and there, we'll just kind of stretch the truth and we'll add a lot of drama to the story so the story can sell. And as he's saying that to you, would you not be offended by that? Well, how do you think the Lord feels when he hears somebody say, well, my Jesus would never say something like that. Or my Jesus would never do something like that. As though my idea of Jesus... My picture of him is actually better than who Jesus really is. It's almost like we went to the Build-A-Bear store and we built and developed our own personal version of Jesus. And yet my Jesus doesn't look anything at all like the Jesus I read about in the Bible. Now you might think to yourself, I I don't do that, but let me challenge you. I want you to take a look at a, a, a statement here and help me fill in the blanks. How many times have you caught yourself thinking this way? If I then God will. You know, if I go to church every Sunday, then God will keep me and my family healthy and safe. If I study the Bible enough, then I'll never, ever have any doubts about God. If I would just pray every morning, then God will guarantee that I will have a happy and blessed marriage. If I do the right things, then God's going to make sure that the right things happen for me. 
Well, God never signed. God never signed that that kind of uh, of, of contract. Uh, do you remember? Do you see the problem here? The problem's the problem's not with God. The problem's with me and my expectations of Him. Do you remember that day when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush? And you remember how God identified Himself to Moses? He said, "I am who I am." Not. I am whoever you want me to be. No, I am who I am. You see, God's not a salad bar where we get to, to pick and choose. I want my God to be like this. I want my God to have these kind of attributes. I want my God to act like this and this and this. But I don't want my God to act like this or this or this. Well, that's not for us to decide. So here's the point that I'm trying to make today. God won't always be what you expect. There's going to be some surprises along the way. But... When the unexpected happens, know this, he's still good. In other words, in your life with God, there are going to be those moments when things just don't make sense. God, I don't see what you're doing right now. I don't understand what's going on. But even in those moments where things don't make sense to you, know this, he can still be trusted. And I, want to, I think we see that truth just illustrated for us all the way through the Christmas story. So this morning, I want to give you two examples of that. First of all, let's begin in Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged or engaged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. So here's Matthew, and he's telling us the story of Jesus. And right away, we're surprised. Because instead of making things simple and easy for Joseph and Mary, no, God's going to do the very reverse. He's about to turn their world upside down. Life for Joseph and Mary is about to get really difficult, and it's all because of God and how he wants to work in their life. Here is God creating a very messy situation for Joseph and Mary. That's not something we would have expected. You know, here's this young lady. She's now pregnant, pregnant before she lives with the man that she is engaged to, and Matthew wants to make it really clear that this man that she's engaged to is not the biological father of the child that she carries in her womb. See, Christmas today is not like Christmas 2,000 years ago. Isn't it true? We want Christmas to be something cozy. You know, the song, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, Jack Frost nipping at your nose. And don't get me wrong, I love that song. That's one of my favorites, especially when sung by Nat King Cole. But isn't that true? When we're seeking Christmas, we're seeking something warm and cozy, something simple and safe and, and comfortable, something that's going to make us feel good. We're looking for something nostalgic. And that's okay. But Christmas wasn't like that 2,000 years ago. See, because of what God wanted to do, now life for Joseph and Mary is about to get really complicated. And here's another complication, verse 19. It says, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, faithful to the Torah, faithful to the Scriptures. Or many of your translations will read, because Joseph was a righteous man. And there's the key word. Because he is that kind of man, he did not want to expose Mary to public disgrace. See, right now for Joseph and everybody else in this little village of Nazareth, it appears that Mary has been unfaithful. And if we were in their shoes, we'd be thinking the same thing. And, and in that day and time, the penalty for this kind of adultery was severe. Grab the rocks. She needs to be stoned. Bring her out. Make sure she's publicly shamed. And then we'll execute her. And Joseph doesn't want that to happen. So Joseph has in mind... A plan for Mary. How am I going to help her? Number one, we're going to have to divorce. Sorry, we cannot continue this relationship. We cannot be husband and wife. But if I'm going to divorce, I want to do it quietly. I want to keep her out of the spotlight. I want to keep her away from the disgrace. I want to keep her away from this trouble. Well, here's the complication. When the Bible says that Joseph is a righteous man, 
what, for the longest time, I just assumed when the Bible said that, it meant that Joseph's a good guy. You know, he's like that neighbor that you can always turn to when you need something. Hey, can I borrow a wrench? Can I borrow a shovel? Sure. They're always there to help you in a pinch. That's not what Matthew's saying. See, for Matthew or any other Jew who's living in that day and time, when you, when you hear that word righteous, immediately you think of the Hebrew term, what we would read in our Old, our Old Testament scriptures, where a righteous person, the, the Hebrew word for that is zadik. And when you call somebody a zadik, you mean you're describing a special kind of person, somebody who stands out from the rest of the community because of how they choose to live their life. A zadik is somebody who's intentional in their commitment to honor God. So when Matthew says that Joseph is this righteous man, he's saying a whole lot more than just, yeah, he's a good guy. No, a zadik is somebody who studies the Torah every day, the scriptures. A zadik is somebody who takes all the offerings and sacrifices you're supposed to make to God. He takes that very seriously, which means any time of the year, no matter what happens, any time of the year when you're supposed to make that long trip from Nazareth down to Jerusalem to the temple to make those offerings and sacrifices, Joseph's always there, never misses. Joseph's zadik means he always pays his taxes, he always gives his tithe, he never ever eats a ham sandwich. I mean, in every detail of his life, Joseph is all in in his commitment to honor God. That's what the Bible means when it calls somebody a Zadik. Well, here's the dilemma. Here's Joseph, this noble, honorable man, always diligent in doing what is right in the eyes of God. And now suddenly he finds himself in this mess, this big mess. His fiance, the one he trusted, she's now pregnant with a child, and he knows he's not the baby's daddy. How do I honor God in a situation like this? And as he's wrestling with this complication, now it gets even more complicated. Verse 20, but after Joseph had considered this, you know, finally, as a Zadik, oh boy, what's the, how do I honor God? Okay, I'll just quietly divorce her. That seems to be the most honorable thing to do here. And all of a sudden, God comes along and says, no, Joseph, I have a different idea. And what God is about to propose is something Joseph never would have expected. After Joseph considered this, came up with his own plan, now he learns God has a different plan. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he and he alone, nobody else can do this. He will save his people from their sins. Now put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Now a messy situation has become an impossible situation. Nothing in Joseph's life has prepared him for this. You know, some of you Bible students might be thinking, oh, David, what about Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, that prophecy where the Bible says, and a virgin shall conceive and give birth to a, a son. Hey, they knew about it. No, no, all the Jewish rabbis in the first century would have considered that prophecy already fulfilled. You go back to Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14 in that Hebrew word, Amma. It can be translated virgin, but it can also be translated young woman. That's how the Jewish scholars would have translated they realized that prophecy was, first of all, a prophecy for Isaiah and the people of his day. At that particular time, the nation of Israel is in grave danger. They're surrounded by all kinds of nations who are threatening to attack, and there's no way that Israel can shield them off. So it seems to be a hopeless situation. And yet all of a sudden, God shows up and says, I'm going to take care of you. And just to give you a sign, to assure you, you can count on me. God is with you. Just so you can have a sign to be sure of this, here's the sign. Isaiah, who at this point is not married, he's not even thinking about it. He's not even dating anybody. And God says, one day, Isaiah's going to get married, married to a young lady, and they're going to have a child, and that first child's going to be a boy. And about the time that boy gets to be 10, 11, 12, the threat will be removed. And sure enough, it happens. I mean, Isaiah's not looking to do anything. 
he meets this young lady. He falls in love. They get married. They have a child. That first child is a boy, just like God said. By the time he gets to the age of 10, those surrounding nations are no longer threatening Israel. And the Jews are going, wow, it's just like God said. So by the time you get to the first century with Zadiks like Joseph, and you get these Jewish rabbis, hey, that prophecy's already been fulfilled. But here's Matthew coming along and saying, oh, no. No, God's going to fulfill that prophecy again, only this time he's going to do it in a greater and a more extraordinary way. This time, God's not just going to take a young lady like Mary. God's going to take a young lady who happens to be a virgin. And while she remains a virgin, she will conceive and give birth to a child. Man, nothing in Joseph's life, his experience, his background, nothing in his study of scriptures has prepared him for this. He never would have expected God to work this way. And mentally, he's, man, how do I get my brain around this, a virgin giving birth to a child? That's not possible. None of this makes sense. And yet Joseph knows God's good, and he can be trusted. So even though he doesn't understand he decides to embrace this mess. I mean, God is asking Joseph to step into a really messy situation. And trust me, this story of Joseph and Mary, it's going to get even messier the further along they go. But Joseph willingly embraces the mess. He does exactly what God tells him to do. And what's the result? Not just a child, but now the Messiah is born. And our world has never been the same since. Many years ago, in Amarillo, Texas, again, this is a true story. You may find this kind of hard to believe, but it's true. Many years ago, Amarillo, Texas, a mother stepped out in her front porch with a cup of coffee just to kind of enjoy the morning. She's standing underneath the roof, standing in between two hanging plants, and standing behind a row of bushes about waist high. So if somebody were taking target practice, she'd be a hard target to hit. And yet, as the mother is standing out there on the porch enjoying her cup of coffee, all of a sudden, the strangest thing happened. An arrow comes flying through the air and hits her in the neck. Two boys have been playing down the street, playing with their dad's bow and arrow, which they were not supposed to do. And all of a sudden, randomly, they just let one of those arrows fly. And when you know it, that, flare, that arrow comes underneath the roof, in between the hanging plants, right over the bushes, hits this mother in the neck. She is stunned. She stumbles back into the house, arrow still in the neck. Her husband sees her. He's alarmed. He immediately rushes her to the hospital. They get to the hospital, and the doctors discover it's a practice arrow, not one of those hunting arrows with the blades. If it had been one of those hunting arrows, the damage would have been much more severe. So even though it was a bad thing she got hit by, arrow, by an arrow, it's fortunate that it was a practice arrow, not a hunting arrow. The other way in which this woman was fortunate, the doctors discover it just barely missed by a millimeter or so her juggler vein. Because if that arrow had hit in the juggler vein, she would have bled out before she ever made it to the hospital. So again, so something bad has happened, yet because of where it hit, again, the woman is pretty fortunate. Well, the doctors immediately take her into surgery and successfully remove the arrow. The next day, just to make sure everything's going to be okay, the doctors order a CAT scan. And while they're doing that CAT scan, they discover a brain tumor. And if it's not dealt with right away, it's going to lead to a life-ending stroke. So instantly, they take her back into surgery and successfully remove the tumor. Three years later, this mother is coming back for her annual checkup with the neurologist. Never thought of seeing a neurologist before, but because an arrow hit her three years ago, she has to go back on a yearly basis to get a brain scan. And three years later, she's coming back for that annual brain scan, and this time the scan shows a vessel that is about to burst, and if it does, it'll cause an aneurysm. So a second time, she's taken in for brain surgery, and a second time, her life is saved. And why? Because three years earlier, the strangest thing happened. An arrow came flying under the porch and hit this woman right in the neck. Who would have expected something so bad to turn out to be something so good for this mom? 
What does the Bible say? His ways are not our ways. Let me give you one more example from the Christmas story. Let's look at our scripture. Colossians chapter 1. I want you to notice just the first part of verse 15 and what this says about Jesus. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says, The Son, Jesus, He is the image, meaning He is the exact likeness of the invisible God. In other words, you want to see God and know what God is really like, you look at Jesus. Well, what does Jesus show us about God in the Christmas story? We'll look at Luke chapter 2. Part of this was read for us earlier this morning. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. Here are the angels talking to the shepherds. Notice what they say. Today in the town of David, meaning Bethlehem, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born for you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. See, God wants to make sure the shepherds will meet Jesus. They're not going to miss out on this opportunity. They're going to meet their Savior. So God gives them some very specific instructions. He says, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Now, for the longest time as a preacher, I'd always focus on the last part of this verse because there's, that's where the real sign is. You know, it's nothing unusual about a mom wrapping her baby up in some claws or a blanket. I mean, they still do that today at the hospital. Nothing unusual about it, but what is unusual and what's going to make sure that the shepherds find this particular child that the angels were talking to them about is the fact that it's lying in a manger. Nobody, not even back in that first century Israel, that very poor country, nobody would ever put a baby in a manger, an animal feeding trough. That's really going to stand out. So for years as a preacher, that's the part of the verse I would focus on. But today I want you to notice those other words. Back up just a moment. A baby. This is God in human flesh. God appearing as a baby, we didn't expect that. But here's the other thing, a baby tightly wrapped up in cloth, meaning confined, restrained, restricted. Wow, I never expected that. Of God, here's the one who created the entire universe, and now he is so tightly wrapped up, he can't even move. He has become like a prisoner in a straitjacket. I mean, imagine what this must have been like for God. He is the master of the universe. He's God. He has no limits. He can do whatever he wants to do. And now he intentionally puts himself in a situation where he's so limited, he can't even move. He's a baby who has to be held and fed and burped and changed. What must that have been like for God? And the reason why I want you to think about that is how many times have you heard yourself thinking, does God know what I'm going through? Does God really understand how I feel. Yes, he does. Think of somebody with OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. I, most of us have no clue what this is really like. This is a condition for those who go through this. You never know when this is going to happen, but frequently the brain will just lock up. I mean, all of a sudden, all these uh, wild, crazy thoughts and fears start to just start running loose in your head. And though many other people can just quickly push that on their mind and get on with their day, somebody with OCD can't. When this begins to happen, it's like a bunch of monkeys, wild monkeys, just running loose, and you, and you can't catch them, you can't tame them. And so you feel trapped, stuck, boxed in. And mentally, does it, it not only creates a tension and a tightness, but physically, it begins to create a tension and a tightness. So when this begins to happen, both emotionally and physically, you literally just freeze up. You just become immobilized. See, we're human beings. We have limitations. We're not God. We have limits. And some people have more than others. Or think of somebody who's stuck in a job where your best talents are never used, your potential is never tapped into. Can you imagine how stifling that is? 
or you think about some of the bad choices that you made in your past, and now because of those bad decisions, you're now stuck with the consequences, and every day those consequences are choking and binding you. Or you think of somebody who's wrestling with an addiction, and they've come to realize that on their own they are powerless to conquer that addiction. Does God understand when I'm trapped, stuck, all bound up like that? Yes, he does. But let's take it a step further. There's more to the story. One more scripture. Notice what God promises to us in Psalm 91 and verse 3. It says, surely he, we're talking about God, surely he will save you from the fowler's snare. It's the picture of a bird trapped in a cage. But somebody comes along to open the door, to give the bird a way out, to give the, the bird an opportunity to be set free. So here is God. Here is God uh, using this picture. He says, I know where you're at. I know you're trapped, but I intend to set you free. But how? Well, it's through the Christmas story. And as we learn it through the Christmas story, we are shocked. This is not what we would have expected. God becomes the bird himself. He enters into the cage. He intentionally steps into the trap that Satan had set for us. God joins us here in this world, a world where we're now caught and confined by our sin, caught and, and confined by the consequences of our sin. He now enters in to the world so that he can give us a way out so he can help set us free and so uh, I'm all mixed up <laughs> let's illustrate this way Let's use the beginning of the story of Jesus and the ending of the story of Jesus. The beginning of the story of Jesus, we find Jesus all wrapped up, tightly wrapped up in a cloth. Here's how he's going to set us free. Here's Jesus all tightly wrapped in a cloth. The end of the story, here's Jesus on a cross, nailed, nailed to a cross. And then he dies. He, he, there on the cross, he's taking the punishment for our sins. And then he's taken down. He dies. He's taken down. What happens? They wrap him up again. Tightly wrap him up so he's bound up like a mummy. 75 pounds of spices added on. And then he's buried in a tomb. And a giant stone is now rolled across the front of that tomb to block the entrance so he's sealed and locked in and trapped. And yet three days later, what happened? Sunday morning, the binding's removed. The stone is rolled away. And our risen Savior steps out of the tomb. And when he steps out of the tomb, he steps out of the tomb not just for himself but for us. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says he's the firstborn over all creation. means he rules over it all. Verse 18 then says, and he is the firstborn from the dead, meaning the first of many more to come. He rises from the dead to give us the promise and hope that one day he's going to raise us up too. Now here's what I want to get to. How does all this about Jesus, how does this help us right now as we find ourselves living in a world where constantly we find ourselves in these frustrating situations where we feel trapped and stuck and bound? How does this truth of Jesus, how does that apply to us right now? I want to illustrate this through the life of Beethoven. Now I know some of you are thinking, man, uh, classical music, I'm not in, into that. You know, a lot of us here, we have no understanding, no appreciation of classical music, I get that. And yet, the irony is, over the course of our lives, many times we've been exposed to the work of some of these great composers and we didn't realize it. So I want to give you an example. I want you to listen to this piece of music. Listen to this. That's good. Some of you are thinking, some, some of you are thinking, hey, I've heard that before. I'm familiar with that just didn't know who, who wrote it. Well, now you know it's Beethoven. 
And here's why I want you to think about Beethoven. The year is 1802. He's just turned the age of 32. And that's when something awful begins to happen. Beethoven begins to lose his hearing. Here's one of the greatest artists in all of Western history. And now he is gradually going deaf. How cruel for a musician. I mean, gradually, the world around him is being shut out. Gradually, the deafness is closing in and trapping Beethoven in a world of silence. And, of course, this troubles Beethoven. I mean, now he not only has to learn how to cope with the deafness, now on a daily basis he has to deal, he has to battle. It's like a spiritual warfare. He has to battle this awful feeling of despair because Beethoven knows he's been born with this incredible gift, this gift for writing and composing music, and that ever since the age of seven when he performed his first piano recital, he's been working really, really hard to cultivate and develop that gift. And now here at the young age of 32, this gift is being taken away. How devastating. How depressing. Now, music theorists and professional musicians can explain this a whole lot better than me because I'm a total novice when it comes to the world of music. But the most baffling part of the story about Beethoven is this. His gift for composing music actually gets better. It actually becomes stronger as he loses his hearing. As the outward hearing begins to disappear, Beethoven works really hard to develop this, this inner muscle, this inner memory, this inner ear in his brain, so that as the boundaries are closing in, as the deafness is closing in, now with this inner muscle, he's, he's, he's able to defy the odds and compose this beautiful music. And compose this beautiful music anyway. So again, let me give you another example. Here's a piece of music that he wrote at a point in his life when he could barely hear a thing. Listen to this. Such a such a simple song, but so beautiful. How do you write something like that when you can barely hear? It's good. To me, the most amazing part of the story is this. About six years, about six years after he's totally lost his hearing, here's an example of one of the symphonies he now composes. Listen to this. tension and the pace that he creates in this composition, and he's creating this without the ability to hear. That's okay. So what is it that's compelling Beethoven to write this kind of music? He's a believer. I know Beethoven had a really strange and quirky personality, but Beethoven also had this firm belief he had a calling from God, a calling to write and perform music. In fact, this was his primary way of bearing witness to the glory of God. For Beethoven, writing and performing music was never just a job. This was his main way of connecting to God and his main way of helping other people to connect to God. So even though this cruel thing is happening and his hearing is gradually being taken away, and so Beethoven finds himself like a bird trapped in a cage, and yet Beethoven's still convinced God's good. And in the midst of all his despair and in the midst of all the difficulties he's fighting and facing on a daily basis, he's still convinced that God's going to work through my life. I may be trapped in a cage, but my music isn't. And somehow, someway, I am convinced that God will use this music to bless others. And so he continues to write. But the ultimate thing that inspires Beethoven, his ultimate hope is this, 
just shortly before he died at the age of 56, died on March the 27th, the same March the 27th when he performed his first piano recital at the age of seven, dies on March 27th, just shortly before he dies, one of the last things he says to his family is this, I will hear again. I will hear in heaven. One day this bird will not be in a cage anymore. You see, Beethoven knew he was a part of a bigger story, a story that God is telling. And because God is telling this story, one day I'm going to be free. The Bible says his ways, they're not our ways. He won't always be what you expect. But know this, when the unexpected happens, he's still good because he is still God. And he can be trusted to take pray. God, it is so comforting to know that you understand all the frustrations and disappointments we feel in this life because you felt them too. And God, it is so encouraging to know that though many times we may feel like a bird trapped in a cage, you know how to set us free. You can set us free from our sin, and one day you promise to set us free from the consequences of our sin. And God, we praise you for that hope. But God, my prayer today is this. You understand the burdens we're carrying right now. You know the things that are troubling our hearts. So would you give us that peace that Ben was reading about earlier today? That peace that passes all understanding. The peace of knowing that you can take the broken pieces of our lives and put them back together in just the right way. The peace of knowing that even though we're going through a difficult moment right now, you will take care of us. God, give us that peace today. And I pray for this in Jesus' name.